Oh, would you look at that? There's a new episode of the Blackcast on my phone, ready to play right now. Blattcast, a sometimes fast-paced but usually meandering look at the world. Hosted by Christian Blatt, his trusty co-hosts Will Sterling, Jeff DeRay, and sometimes the lovely Zia Anderson, and less occasionally, Lindsay Floyd. So kick back, get ready for quite possibly the longest one hour to perhaps the shortest two hours and 56 minutes of your life. And now, here's Christian Blatt. Welcome to the Blackcast. Christian Blatt here for another fun-filled installment. Very excited to speak with our guest today, Andrew Heaton, who not only has a podcast called The Political Orphanage, he has a, a book with a with a pretty great title. I, 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 I don't even need to uh, wholeheartedly endorse the title, but I love it. Los Angeles is a hideous... Uh, Los Angeles is hideous. Poems about an ugly city. Uh, Andrew, thanks for taking the time to chat with me today. My pleasure. Thank you very much, Christian. I'm delighted to be here on the Blackcast. So uh, let, let's uh, before we get to the actual poetry in there. And uh, I, I was uh, I, I thought when you know you you said the title of the book, I just thought it's going to be like okay, so he's just going to write about how terrible it is. But I like that you actually took the time to create art. And you can argue whether all book is art. But poetry is definitely in a class differently than, you know, a bunch of uh, essays, you know. So yeah. uh, talk about the idea of, you know, looking around yourself when you were still in Los Angeles and thinking, wow, this place is hideous. I want to make some poems about it. Yeah. OK, so I, I, I've lived in Los Angeles twice and I, I, I lived there right out of college. I lived in a tool shed behind my best friend's house. Uh, and was trying to get into radio, and, and I ended up leaving after about eight months because I just didn't like it. And then I came back uh, in 2020. I came back in January of 2020 for the networking. <laughs> Again, for the networking. Yeah, good uh, timing. Good yeah, timing. Exactly. And, I, and I, going out there, I was like, you know, like I'm a forest guy. My favorite city in the world is Edinburgh, which is this autumn, oh, rainy, sure. hilly city with lots of castles. It's very walkable. So like Los Angeles is the antithesis of that. And I've been out there several times, so I knew this in advance. And I was like, don't worry, this it's not gonna be aesthetically pleasant, but uh, all of the networking you will do will compensate. And it doesn't matter that you're living in an overpriced box uh, with no porch, you're gonna be hanging out with producers and models every night. It's all gonna be this great thing. And I was, I, it, that was my mindset. And I was walking around Los Angeles, I was looking at apartments and was going through and I was just so, I was so overwhelmed at how ugly the city is. Just like, and it, I realized there's probably attractive parts of the city. None of the places I hung out or lived in ever remotely stayed. Just, it struck me as just a series of large dumpsters stacked on never-ending parking lots. And I just, I, 
I was so repulsed by it that I started taking notes. And then when I finally decided to leave, because I did in about this time last year, uh, I'd been out there for you know six months and was like, well, this is ridiculous. This is this is like like the young Angelou that marries the the ninety five year old rich guy, and then it turns out he doesn't have any money. And I was like, well, I'm I'm gone. <laughs> I didn't come here for the love. I came here for the money. So uh, I got out, and as I was leaving, I was like, you know what? I kind of want to like do something with this just sense of uh, bristling terror I have at at what the, what the town looks like. I'll add for anybody that's really confused. I don't like summer, and I think beaches are just a desert with a hole at the end. So the stuff that like <laughs> appeals to people in Los Angeles is utterly, utterly lost on me. Like I get if if you really like summer, you love beaches. I kind of get why you'd like LA. I will I'll, I'll point out that there's literally a long squiggly beach all the way from Mexico up to Alaska, so you could live anywhere else. But all the same, though, none of the the beguiling elements of the city work on me. So sure, and, and I'll just interject. You know, yeah. depending on uh, you know if somebody's geography is completely flexible, there's also beach all the way from Florida up to Maine. So uh, you know, I, I think I'll have to, we'll have to fact check that. But I, yeah, I know you the know what? I, I, let me not put that out there. Yeah. You know what? Uh, the, the, it's a very volatile time right now. I shouldn't have yeah. put that out there. My apologies. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and so yeah, I wrote Los Angeles. The city is now. I'll, I'll for for anybody that's that's um, worried because it's poetry. Look, I, I get where you're coming from. I also think poems are just written by people too lazy to learn guitar. I don't know why the medium <laughs> exists anymore. I think as soon as we invented keyboards and ukuleles, it probably should have become like a passe thing, like like you know harpsichords or whatever. So what it really, in my opinion, Los Angeles is hideous is really a series of jokes that are being spoon-fed into your brain using poetry, and it rests on your coffee table. Yeah, which I think is, uh, which is a, it's a great conversation piece, especially if uh, you are in Los Angeles. You know. Uh, <laughs> well, and actually, can can I ask you? So you're the first person I've spoken to about this book who lives in Los Angeles, with, yeah. with the exception of my, my friend Bridget Fetisy, who lives in Los Angeles. I don't know if you know her. Um, she she no. did write a blurb for it, which was really nice. But you're the first person I've spoken to, and I've been very like very cagey. Because it's like if you're in New York, you love slagging on Los Angeles. If you're in San Francisco, yes. people in Northern California love making fun of Southern California. But like, like, so for you being in Los Angeles, is this funny? Like, you don't agree with it, but it's funny, or is it like yeah. no, no, it's it, funny it, enough? It, it's, where are you? It's it's very funny. It, it's in the way where I think you know. First of all, I'm not from here. I moved here from New York, so I chose okay. to come here. So my attachment is a little bit different yeah. you know it's it's not like hey hey that's my home no it's just a place that i've happened to live for 18 years now you know uh -huh. and and i've got a wife and two kids here so it's like you know I'm, I'm i'm not going anywhere at this point but i mean there's a lot of things i like about it but i can certainly laugh about it you know right. i mean if if you you know a good a good parody of a movie you love is still going to be funny Right. You know, as as much as I loved Star Wars growing up as a kid, I, I could read the Mad Magazine parody and be like, yeah, that's kind of funny. O only yeah. kind of funny, but still kind of funny. Uh, and I, I don't agree with the blanket statement, Los Angeles is hideous. But I, what I will agree with, boy, is there are a lot of places that are hideous, you know. And you were talking about how people say like, oh, yeah, yeah, we have the beach. But how many people do you know in Los Angeles that actually live close to the beach? Right. I, I know some and they live close in the way where it's only 10 minutes. Whereas like I, we took the kids to the beach over the weekend for the first time all year. And it took us an hour to get there, but we knew it was going to take an hour to get there. Right. And, you know, growing up, we used to go down the Jersey shore and that would take like three hours. So to me, I'm like, this is great, but I, I've never lived at the beach. 
And I feel like it's too cold out there anyway. So if I did live at the beach, uh, my kids loved it. So it's like, yeah, right. I got a little sunburn, but uh, that's fine. But I think that uh, there's, there's a lot of things that I like about California, which is, oh, you can drive maybe two hours in any direction. And what season do you want? Do you want it to be summer? Do you want to go out to the snow? Not quite this time of year, but do you want to go out to the mountains? You know, and uh, I think that the fact that it's such a varied climate is great, you know, because there's so much you can do, especially right now. My uh, my daughter's preschool uh, doesn't want us. She's uh, about to she'll be four later this year. They don't want us to leave the state. And if we do leave the state, then our kid has to quarantine for two weeks. So believe me, as much as I want to go to Vegas, I am not leaving the state Uh, as much as I want to see people in other parts of the country. I, I don't, love them enough that I want to spend an extra two weeks with my kids uh, hold up uh, in, in the house. You know, the idea of coming home from a vacation and then not like, okay, please go, go and be free at your, at your preschool and have fun. Uh, that's not appealing to me. So, uh, you know, we can, you know, we, you go up to Santa Barbara. It's lovely up there. Your book is in Santa Barbara is hideous, no, but I, I don't have any, pre- I think I actually think Northern California is super pretty. I love yeah. trees and I love forests. Yeah. So like, like I, I was out in Oakland for a month, uh, covering stuff for the, my, my podcast, the political orphanage back in, uh, October, November. And I was like, this is great. I can drive any direction and hit redwoods in 10 minutes. Yeah. Like, uh, like Northern, cause Northern California starts kind of turning into Oregon. Like it turns yeah. into kind of like Pacific Northwest kind of stuff. Uh, no, it's, it's one of the great things about California is it, it is a large state with lots of different ecos, uh, ecosystems. I, I agree. Yeah. And I mean, you know, you, you'll be in San Francisco, uh, you know, and the the coldest I've ever been, uh, you know, I think it's a it's a Mark Twain yeah. saying that I'm butchering. But to be honest, the coldest I've ever been at a baseball game is a July night game in San Francisco. <laughs> and I went to opening day at Shea Stadium in New York when it was in March. And it was so much colder in San Francisco in July. And then the crazy thing is you take you take the BART, you take the public transport into Oakland. It's like 90 degrees the same day, yeah. you know, and you're like, I, I, I don't understand. <laughs> but it's fascinating, you know, that you can have all these different uh, these different things, you know, uh, you know, uh, it, funny here in the chat, uh, Lynn B mentioned something. Uh, she's she's talking about uh, Randy Newman. I love L.A. And I, I think it's a great starting point because, you know, I'm talking about baseball games when the Dodgers win. They play I love L.A. And it's sort of like this, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's as close as an anthem as L.A. has. But Randy Newman didn't love L.A. And the whole point of the song is how terrible it is. <laughs> but that's completely lost on everybody listening to the song. Like New York, New York is a beautiful song celebrating New York, Chicago, my kind of town, you know, but. LA doesn't really, you know, I mean, it's, you could have a a hooray for Hollywood, but you know, songs about LA as a city, it's not really romanticized that much. So I think I'm assuming you're not finding much pushback from people telling you that it's hideous. Yeah, I don't think so. Cause I I think like the things you can say about Los Angeles that I think are, are accurate is it's a huge creative hub. There's no disputing that there's tons of creative people there. If you work in the arts, if you work in entertainment, you work in show business, there's all sorts of stuff for you to do there, which is why I moved out there, right? But I, but I know I know a ton of people that are there. They're like, my career is here, but yeah, like I'd rather live in Vermont, all things being equal, uh, or I'd rather live in Hawaii or wherever the thing is, right? So I, I don't. So far, nobody's gotten super angry at me. Uh, I, it'll be curious if that happens, just because 
so much of my other work is in political media and I try not to, like, I don't like fighting with people. I don't like arguing with people, but I feel like this is something that's just entirely aesthetic. So I could really give into that and fight and, and argue. And I'm kind of curious to see what happens if, if I do have pushback and just going like, yeah, I'll, I'll lean into it. Um, I, I'm curious, Christian, you, you said that you, you can't leave the state. Is That's because you've got kids, right? Like, uh, like, yeah, it, it's, 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 uh, uh, my kids go to different preschools. Uh, the one that my daughter goes to, that's just their policy and it's a corporation, you know, I mean, it's a, I, I, I guess I can call it a chain of preschools. I don't, I don't know if that's quite the right term, but, and that's just what their policy is. Mm -hmm. So if you leave the state, it's fine. You just have to quarantine. I think it's 10 days now. It used to be okay. 14 days, but it's for all intents and purposes, that's two weeks. So yeah, so that's the reason why. Uh, and I, I think that's one of those where, you know, and then it's like, okay, is it if I go on vacation with my kids? Uh, there there was uh, something uh, work-related that I almost did at the, earlier in the year that was in Florida. And then I was going to have to be like, well, can I go and then come back? Or is that going to be a problem too? Because if that was the case, then I just would have lied, hmm. you know? I just would have been like, yeah, I don't know. So uh, it's just the idea, I guess, of taking the kids. And, and you know, they're good about it. You know, the people who run it, it's like, you know, they didn't choose the policy. They're just like, we'll let you know if it changes. Well, and I, and I, I get it, though, too, right? Because, like, like I'm I'm vaxxed. Like, once I got vaxxed and my parents yeah. got vaxxed, because, I like, I was mostly afraid of killing my parents. That was my big concern. Once, once I got vaxxed and they were vaxxed, I was like, I'm done. Like, I'll, I'll wear a mask and stuff if it's surreal. It doesn't bother me. But, like, I, I'm, I'm not going to worry about, like, going to parties. But like you can't vaccinate kids under thirteen, right? So I like that's yeah. still like, and I, I yeah. have no acknowledged children, so I don't have to worry about that. But for people that have acknowledged children, yeah. you, you do. Well, and that's what it comes down to is, uh, you know, we took the kids to uh, Disneyland a couple weeks ago, and uh, the policy is if you're vaccinated, you don't have to wear masks. It's the honor system, which is, I guess, the very Disney way. Is uh, sure, you know, just smile if, if you're not vaccinated, and we'll believe mm -hmm. you. Uh, but. Our, our kids aren't vaccinated. So we have them wear masks, obviously not when we're eating or whatever. Uh, but because we want our kids to wear masks, we wear masks, right. uh, except for when we're eating because it, you know, it would just be like, no, no, you still have to wear them. And because they have to wear them at school, honestly, it's not that hard for them. Uh, on a hot day, we're going to be mindful of giving them more to drink, more water and, and, you know, maybe a little extra ice cream, you know, things like that. Uh, but uh, for the most part, yeah, I think that if I'm somewhere with my kids, uh, we also took them to the movies when my mom was in town and when they weren't eating popcorn, it's okay, well, we'll put them back on just because that's inside, you know? And uh, it, there were other kids there that didn't have masks on and I wasn't looking over at those parents like, mm -hmm. you know, uh, so I would hope that they weren't looking at me thinking like, what's wrong? What's wrong with these, uh, you know, <laughs> what, what do they think it is October, 2020? Why are they wearing masks still? <laughs> Uh, and yeah, my wife and I got vaccinated, uh, but uh, we still, I don't know. I mean, especially like restaurants and supermarkets and things, a lot of the people who work there have them on and that's yeah. kind of why I still wear it. Well, okay. One, I'm a pussy and I'm cold in the supermarket. So it really helps my face. Right. Yeah. You, know? you got a face cover. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, and, and then when it's cold again later this year, I'll probably be like, oh yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll probably well, wear I, it. You know what? I, I hope we keep them for planes. And like, if you yeah. visit New York, like I go to New York all the time, like I'll probably keep wearing it in the subway. That makes sense to me. Like, yeah. uh, uh, pl places that have a ton of people, like I like I travel a fair amount. I've, there's so many times where I've sat next to somebody with a cold, and I just hate them oh, the yeah. entire time. Where that you can hear them like this. I remember just vividly this guy was like, <sighs> and you could see him like dribbling and stuff, and he'd sneeze. Yeah. And I was like, and I somehow miraculously I didn't get a cold from it. But I like, man, I wanted him to burst into flame. I was so angry, and like, like yeah, like I hope I hope we keep that with masks.
Yeah, I mean, remember, you know, uh, you used to be in the airport and there'd be, you know, like the, the Asian family traveling, you know, from from or to wherever and they all had the masks on and you're like well that's weird but then you know i i, I went to beijing and the uh just the air quality was so bad i'm like oh yeah i kind of wish i had one of those masks yeah you know because uh, I, I and you know look it's uh i i agree i haven't flown yet mostly because i haven't had to but you know i also haven't wanted to uh, uh just uh, you know not traveling far enough but uh i i would love for for that to kind of uh, be the norm at least for a, a while uh you know and uh, i'm not uh, you know i think in general if people want to sit inside at a restaurant, that's fine. I'm just going to still sit outside because I, I, it's, it's just easier, you know, right now I live in Los Angeles and one of the things that you can, one of the perks to Los Angeles is you can eat outside pretty much all the time. Yeah, right. Exactly. So, uh, you know, and I think that, uh, it's, you know, look, I, I don't want to get into the politics of it too much, but it's relevant. You know, look, I think that uh, when the rumblings of a, of a recall for our governor, Gavin Newsom, came up, all of a sudden things fast tracked. Things that you thought were going to happen in the in the fall or late summer all of a sudden happened in like May, yeah, you know? Yeah. yeah. So uh, and, and I was like, OK, good, the, because, you know, you'd hear about other states, you know, states that, that uh, like legitimately had a lot of problems with covid, uh, you know, like when when New York City starts opening and you're like, yeah, but they're all stacked on top of each other we're spread out, you know, Randy Newman sang about all that geography. <laughs> we have all this space. What mm -hmm. are we doing? So, uh, yeah, but what I will say to just bring you back to baseball games again, when I went to Dodger stadium and it was still uh 25% capacity, I've never had more fun at a baseball game without all those <laughs> damn people, you know, yeah. <laughs> and when we went to Disneyland and the capacity, I think was 30%. I'm like, that yes, please, no more people. This is great. And then everything's opened like full. And it's like, it's not even like I'm, I'm, I'm worried about the, the health ramifications. I'm like, no, I just don't want as many people around, you know, 30% Disney world sounds fantastic. Like that's usually the kind of thing they do for like princes visiting <laughs> where, you know, right. like, like, like uh, Diana came with, with uh, Prince William and they like, we'd like shuffle her to the front of the line and stuff. That sounds amazing. And then yeah. with the baseball games, you just need to pick less popular teams. Like you just need to downscale to like, like well, very poorly functioning farm teams or minor league teams. Yeah. They have well, a blast. Well, I grew up a Mets fan, so uh, 30% capacity is uh, kind of what I uh, was used to, you know, because Shea Stadium held like 55,000. Uh -huh. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I think I was at one playoff game that was sold out. But usually, yeah, it was around 30%. Uh, so, you know, I think that uh, L.A., it, uh, and I've known a few people who've moved from L.A. during the last year just because they were like, well, I don't really need to be here because of the benefit. And it makes sense that for you, if you were doing it for the, the networking of it. So uh, do you say where you've moved to or is it a secret location? Oh, no, I'll tell people. I, I got a grant to move to Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh, great. And, uh, and for people that are unfamiliar with Tulsa, because they're assuming it's, it's actually a quite pretty city. There's a city. There's lots of trees. It's also like it's about 500,000 people, maybe 400,000 people, which sounds really tiny. But I think it's actually a really good amount because uh, like in Los Angeles or New York, if, if you want to find something, you can you can find it. There's absolutely anything you want to do in L.A. or New York, you can. Um, and you can probably find 15 or 16 different versions of it, too. In Tulsa, you can find like anything you want, but only one to three of those things. And the upshot to it is you never drive more than 20 minutes. And then the other upshot I'm finding is that if like, like there's a cigar lounge I go to uh, in downtown Tulsa, 
Uh, if you like cigars, you're going to meet everybody else in Tulsa that likes cigars. So you're going to have lots of friends that are black and gay and transgender and all these things. Because every single person that likes cigars is going to funnel through that same bottleneck, and everybody kind of gets along. So uh, I, yeah, I'm in Tulsa. I moved out here in May. Uh, I'm here for a year on a on a grant program that I received, and, uh, and then at the end of uh, uh, next May, I'll decide if I want to stick around and become mayor and get two or three wives, or if sure. I move on to another location. Well, and you know, you were talking about your podcast, Political Orphanage, and the way that most podcasts happen. Yes, some of them have gotten back to studios and things, but in general, I think people are accustomed to the way we're doing this right now. You know, we're in two very different locations, but uh, very easily having a conversation. And so the fact that you were moving to Tulsa, Tulsa, I don't think it probably didn't miss it. The podcast probably didn't miss a beat, right? No, I, I, there is literally no, the, the only difference is people can hear that my voice sounds less stressed. I sound less sweaty. Uh, but, but other than that, there's been no, there was never a hitch in the production schedule or anything like that. I do worry a little bit that uh, there might be a networking opportunity loss uh, because I find that if I'm in say, cause I, the political orphanage, I, I interview a lot of authors and I interview a lot of thinkers. So it would be beneficial to me to be in say DC on a regular basis or New York on a regular basis, because I, I meet people at, parties and, and I'd go, oh, I should talk to you about your book. So I'm a little bit worried about that. So far, it hasn't been an issue at all. Like I, I'm finding that if I email people and go, hey, like I, your book sounds really interesting. I'd like to talk to you about it. They're fine with it. The pandemic for all the horrible things it's done is it has at least sort of normalized Zoom, which was not, it's hard to remember this, but people didn't necessarily know what Zoom was a year and a half ago. I did because I was already doing a lot of remote work, but now it's very common. So you can kind of do it from wherever. I, th I think you're muted, Christian. Still, oh, there you go. Okay. Myself, didn't I? No. <laughs> the good thing I have a podcast host on here that can uh, tell me when yeah. my mic one is not turned on. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I, 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 so what happened was I, uh, uh, even less professional, I yanked the cord out with my foot. So nice. then when I plugged it back in, I, I was uh, muted. So, and, and you know what? The pop up window tried to warn me. And I was like, shut up. I know I kicked it out, but uh, you know, I, so I, I, I had, so I had uh, Justin Amash on my program about four months ago and he had just left. I, I guess he left Congress a couple of weeks back or a couple of months sure. back. And I wanted to, I didn't want to talk to him about what he wishes Congress would do. I just wanted to talk to him about like, how does Congress work or not work? Like I was really yeah. curious to talk to him about like, just institutionally, how does this work rather than like what you want to do economically. And I, I was transitioning to Oklahoma at the time. And I was staying at a cabin on a lake and I had good internet, uh, but because I didn't have all of my setup with me, I had to like make this weird, like makeshift recording booth thing where I put a microphone inside of a, like an eggshell kind of uh, crate. And then I balanced a couple of books on top of that. And then, uh, and then the laptop on top of that. And like, right as I started talking to him, I noticed something and the whole thing just came clattering down. Like just everything just <laughs> shattered. It didn't break. It, just, it was like, I could not have been, I could not have been a worse way to begin that conversation of like, uh, hey, like I'm a, I'm just this random dude in the basement because I want to come off professional, right? And like yeah. I was like, no, there's no illusion that I am cool or professional at this point with this man. But well, for those nice. for those watching the video version and have seen a lot of the videos, uh, they know that I I am essentially in the basement. I'm in the back room in my garage, and then you know, but you can't win because if if I do it upstairs at the dining room table. And people are just like, oh, you're just like sitting in the middle of your dining room. I'm like, but yeah, well, why not? You know, yeah. like I, I'm in my bedroom right now because it's got carpets. And so yeah. it, it absorbs the sound. So it's the best acoustic room in the place. Yeah. Yeah. You, I've intentionally put the camera so you can't see the bed because I feel that's just a little too intimate. I don't want people <laughs> to see 
the bed. But like yeah. as it is, it, it's fine where it is. I you don't want them critiquing cool backgrounds. Yeah, you don't want them critique critiquing your uh you know your bed making habits. You know, I sat down uh when my mom was in town. I I did a podcast with her, and we got like. Five, not even five minutes in and uh, the cord fell out and uh, the whole thing just went out. So I like flipped up my phone and we're like, ha, 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 okay. So it's, it's like, oh yeah, I'm in show business, mom, you see. <laughs> but you know the, what you're saying about Zoom, it's, uh, and I know I'm not the first one to make this point, but what I was going to say is, it, it, you know, how did Skype drop the ball in that moment? That's the oh, moment that point. Skype was, and, and Microsoft owns Skype now. So there are plenty of people who should have been keeping an eye on that. But you know what? Maybe that's the reason why it fell through the cracks. If Skype was in the business for Skype, they probably would have been like, no, 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 let's make sure, let's give it away for free for right now and, and let people yeah. try and see how, because every once in a while, somebody's like, oh, can you connect on Skype? I'm like, ew, I can. I, yeah. But do we have to? Yeah, and somebody wanted, I, I, it's like, can you call me on the the phone? What? I, I pretty much only use Skype at this point. If if I have I have had certain guests that are just not very tech savvy, and that's like the one thing they know. They know Skype, right? And I'll yeah. do it, but I, I prefer not to. It's much more clunky. I would much rather do. I've got, I've, yeah, yeah. I've got, I hadn't even thought about that. You're right. They were the best position company on yeah. the planet to handle a pandemic, and they didn't capitalize on. How did that happen? Wow. Uh, I don't know. I guess. Uh, well, we we know Bill Gates was distracted. So that's true. Uh, yes, you're right. Yeah. Uh, and he didn't, by the way, he didn't want to split more money with his his ex wife. So he yeah. was like, you know what? I'm going to drop this. I, I would rather us both have less than you have more. Uh, in the live chat, our friend Sam Whitfield points out he enjoyed your conversation with Michael Malice. Who oh, cool. uh, Michael Michael Malice is uh, is tremendous. We had him on uh, the Dennis Miller option, and uh, it was a uh, you know it was sort of through friends and when he was still at uh, Anthony Cumia's uh, Compound right. uh, Media, and uh, I, I I was loosely familiar with him, but his conversation with Dennis was great, and uh, I I did see that's one of your most recent episodes, yeah. right, Andrew? It was last week, about. yeah, yeah. Yeah. And uh, he's, uh, you know, and, and and you wanted him to basically explain how anarchy works, you mm -hmm. know, and it seems like that's uh, the approach that your podcast, because you were talking about talking to Justin Amish, like, well, no, how does how does Congress work or don't work? And and a lot of people want to get into you know policy and stuff, but it's it's a valid way to look at. Well, honestly, anything. But yeah, because it's like if you look at Congress and like it kind of doesn't work. But right. how's it supposed to work? You yeah. know, and, and is that sort of the approach you tend to take is just, uh, yeah, just let's go through this and see how we can try to make this work. You know, very much so. So I, I enjoy doing policy work about once a month. I'll do a deep dive on some kind of policy where it'll just be me and I'll do like a really research monologue on like I did one last month on like, why is college expensive? And like, what, like, what do we do about student loan debts? And I have my own assessment of why it's happening and I have my own policy prescriptions for it. But I, I do my best to explain, like, these are the perimeters of the debate. And, and this is, you know, what the landscape looks like, because I don't really, I'm not particularly interested in convincing my audience to agree with me. I just want them to be smarter versions of whatever, whatever they are, because I shouldn't be the smartest person working on this stuff. But I, I think I can help people that don't full time podcast, at least get an understanding of it. Uh, when, but most of the time I'm talking to guests, and, and you're absolutely right, when I, when I bring a guest on the program, I am far more concerned about trying to understand problems and understand how people think and solve problems than advocating for a particular viewpoint. So I have my bearings. I'm, I'm a very free enterprise guy. Uh, I, I'm very, very socially tolerant, very pluralistic. So I like I've got I've got things that I feel very strongly about. 
But when I bring on guests, the, the, the point of the program has never been to affirm to people what they already believe, which I think is a lot of political media is, um, you're more right than you already thought you were. And the team you hate is even worse than you thought they were. And I, I have no desire to do that. I, I am much more interested in bringing on people that challenge me and challenge the audience and make me think. And I might not agree with them, but at the end of it, I like I do have a slightly broader worldview and I maybe I am wrong about something. And so, yeah, very much so. Like, and Michael's great for that because like, I don't think anarchism would work. I'm not an anarchist, but it was a fascinating conversation because Michael's a very, very smart guy. And, uh, and has really put in a lot of thought into what an anarchistic world would look like and what a stateless society would look like. And over the course of talking to him, I'm like, I still don't buy this, but he's given me some analytical tools now that I can apply to other things that uh, like, I don't know, you, you, you start to look at war different. You start to look at authority different. And uh, so, yeah, when I, I, I try to bring up people all the time that, that are, are a little bit different than my own viewpoint, but have a good conversation with them as opposed to just fight them. Yeah, which is, I think, what good conversation should be, and obviously good interviews are, too, is just, you know, well, let's just talk about it and disagree all we want, as long as you let both parties say, you know, here's the thing I think, well, you know, I actually think this. I think uh, I think that's great, and I think that the proliferation of the podcast, you know, I mean, obviously, you know, Joe Rogan with his three-hour conversations, you know, people are willing to listen if you just give them time. I mean, I think when you were, you know, the the, the worst, I think, you know, it's, it's what uh, put food on my table for a while, but uh, the the worst thing for the art of interviewing was uh, broadcast radio. Because it's like, yeah, you can have a conversation for an hour, but you're going to need to do it in eight right. minute chunks with like five right. minutes of commercials in between. And, you know, there's there's something great about those conversations, especially when you could take live feedback from the audience. That stuff is great. But what was always better was like recording it after the show and then carving it up later yeah. so that I could fit in that format. And, you know, doing a, a podcast, we can really get deeper in a conversation. You know, having done a radio show and a podcast with Dennis Miller, he's a great interview in either format. But mm -hmm. when he could just talk to somebody and not be like two minutes, 30 seconds, we got to go, right. you know? Yeah. And, 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 you know, he's trying to hit a joke on the way out. You know, it was, it, it's just so much better. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting when people don't agree and they're going to have like a civil conversation about it, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Obviously, you know, people can make the point all they want about why they think we are, but uh, just the, the polarization when it comes to talking about anything, I mean, God, you, you, yes, it's polarizing to talk about politics, but if you, if you go on Twitter and you say, you know, I really like that black widow movie. What, what do you yeah. mean you like the black widow movie? What the hell's wrong with you? Here's, here's the eight things that you shouldn't like about it. I'm like, I don't know. I thought it was fun, fun. Who has fun in 2021, you know? So I a thousand percent agree with everything you just said, Christian. Like literally every, like, so I, I've worked in radio, but I have worked in television. I was a television writer and news analysis programming. And I'll say like my old boss, Kennedy, is great. I love Kennedy. Uh, she's very, very smart. And I worked with a lot of really smart people. The first show I was on was called The Independence and Matt Welch and, and Camille Foster were also on that. All of them incredibly literate, high level thinkers. And by the end of it, I was like, these people are so confined by a medium which won't allow them to ever be fully expansive. And it's, it's just like you talked about with that, just not even getting into profit uh, incentives, the structure itself of the, the, the longest segment we had on the independence was eight minutes. And we usually had four people on camera. So doing math, everybody gets about two minutes to talk about something. So if we're talking about like Israel, Palestine, and you've got two minutes, to make your point about how to fix international politics with this thousand year old conflict going on. 
like you're not going to do it. You're, what you're going to end up doing is basically shouting bumper stickers at each other. And uh, and and so I podcasting is great for that because you you can't actually hear people out, um, particularly when you disagree with them. You can like like one of the things that I don't know. I, I've I've kind of shifted away from like I disagree with you to that's interesting. Like that's becoming more and more my default. Is like wow, that is not where I went. How did you how did you get there? How did you get to that position? And then and then kind of drawing them out. And then a lot of the time again, they you you find these interesting positions. And I, I think on top of that too, that at least with television because it, it is primarily an entertainment medium rather than an informational medium. It's always beneficial. It's always more beneficial than not to have heightened drama and conflict. And because people understand binary thinking easiest, right? Like it ha having black, white, up, down, blue team, red team, that kind of thing. Everybody kind of intuitively understands I'm on one team and the other team's going to do something, right? Um, it lends itself to that kind of reductive, conflict-driven way of approaching things that you don't get in podcasting and, and in long-form interviews where the way I look at it, like I'm bringing on a series of friends because we're both on the same team. We're trying to solve problems. And a lot of the time we have different solutions to solve those problems. And we're going over each other's solutions in the effort to solve those problems. I don't view the people I bring on my show that I disagree with as an existential enemy that I need to combat for the, you know, for the, the edification of the audience. And, uh, and so, yeah, podcasting is great. And then in terms of the, like, hating stuff on Twitter, man, Christian, I am a thousand percent with you on that. Like, I, I think, I think we're going to look back at Twitter uh, and Facebook and, and, and go, we designed a medium that was almost perfectly sculpted to exacerbate pathological problems in individuals of uh, I'm getting attention. I'm getting, uh, I'm getting um, reinforcement from my group and all these things. And I like, I'll, I'll see these feuds on Twitter. I have one or two friends that have made Twitter work for them. Uh, I mentioned Bridget Fettis earlier. Michael Malice is a good example of somebody who's really figured out how to integrate that into his career. For 90% of the people, myself included, Twitter is just bickering with strangers for no reason at all. You're, you're, you're arguing with somebody who's probably sitting on a toilet that's just doing stuff while they're bored. <laughs> and it has no benefit at all. And it's like, yeah. why are you doing this with your time? And then, and then on top of that too, it's like I don't like I, I don't really watch Marvel, but if you like if you enjoyed Black Widow, good for you. I don't care. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, I I don't like the Fast and Furious movies because I don't like cars, but yeah. I they're hugely popular. They're very successful. Great if you liked it, that's good. Just you know, I mean, I, you know, I and and I, uh, I I never watched Game of Thrones because I don't like dragons and hobbits mm -hmm. and stuff like that. It's just not my thing. I like nerd stuff, but that's just not what I'm into. And like, How could you not watch it? I'm like, I don't know because I don't think I'd like it. Yeah, uh, you know, wouldn't you rather I just say I don't, you know? Then I'm not saying you don't like it. I'm so glad right. you like it, you know. And then when somebody likes something that I didn't, I'm like, man, I wish I liked it, you know. Yeah. If if I have that opinion, I'm like, I wish I could have liked it as much as you do, you know. And but it's like, no, people are out there this with the same like venom and and vigor with which they want to prove why their political points are right. They want to tell you why you shouldn't like a movie or a comic book or a, a yeah. cartoon. And I'm just like, uh, uh, all right. And you know, it's, it's hard to not get wrapped in wrapped up into it in just a little bit, because it's like, uh, you know, you just want to sometimes respond to somebody and you're like, I guess, but uh, you know, we'll, just, we'll I'll get just, drawn in. Like I, yeah. I definitely, I'll get suckered in, but I, I, and I think that there's a kind of, one of the things I'm long-term worried about for our society is I, I think that one of the best things that America ever came up with and has been in the process of perfecting over the last, you know, 200 years is pluralism. Or I, I, don't, I guess we didn't come up with it, but we, we attempted yeah. to create a pluralistic culture. And my definition of pluralism is you have the right to be wrong. 
you can be incorrect. It's okay for people yeah. to be incorrect about stuff. And where, where we come into conflict is, are you, are you wanting to be violent? Or are you wanting to take rights or money from people? Or are you wanting to be a dick to people? That's, that's where we need to have these conversations. If you can be okay with people being wrong, I'm generally fine with you. And, uh, and it, 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 it's kind of getting to this level of like, yeah, you gotta, I'm, I'm going to shout out the stuff that I love and I love Marvel or whatever. And like, and if you can't do it, I can't handle it. And it's like, who cares? This is such a low level, low level thing of, uh, of, of, you know, enjoying yourself and other people doing it. But like, like to, to go back to uh, like, like I'm in Oklahoma. So I just, I, I marched to the, the gay pride parade here a couple of weeks ago, very pro gay, very much on that team. But I'd say like, if there's people in Oklahoma that don't think gay marriage is legitimate because they have religious reasons and they don't think it's real and they think it's sinful, as long as they're okay with the legal rights existing and they're not trying to militate against that and they can be nice and interact with gay people in a um, in a in, in a workplace environment and and, and that, that sort of thing, I, I don't think it's that big of a deal. It's like I, I'm okay with them being wrong. I'd prefer that they come around to our position that it's you know, fine and really, really normal. But there's a difference between like that person that's going, um, I'm not sure I agree with this, uh, but but I'm okay with it existing and, and I'm gonna exist in my own little world. And it's like, cool, as long as we can all go to the grocery store and work together, that, that doesn't really offend me. But but when people like wanna get like combative about it, like, no, you all, we all have to believe what I believe. We all have to uh, have on an interior level what I believe. That's the, the when it starts getting dicey. Yeah. And I think that that's what it really comes down to when, you know, that's an issue where politics and, and religion definitely often merge is, you know, about gay marriage, gay mm -hmm. rights and, uh, you know, abortion, obviously both of those things. But just in general, politics sort of becoming like this religion that they have for so many people. It, it, and, you know, there are some there's definitely some faiths that are like, oh, I believe this and you don't. So you're probably going to go to hell. But then there's the other ones who are like, no, no, I have to now try to convert you to my way of thinking. And it's like, right. well, it's not really going to work. Yeah. You know, I mean, uh, you know, uh, did, did the crusades work? I mean, I guess it depends on who you ask, but uh, I don't, I don't think so. If the goal so. was relentless bloodshed and yeah. frequent changing real estate, then they worked masterfully. Yeah, Otherwise, but, no. But by the way, the, the tweets about the crusades, if only you had read some of those, you know, they were just like, I can't believe you think this isn't working. Look at what it's doing. But yeah. And it's, it, and it's just like, everybody's so divided and, you know, you can, Look, it, it was easy to say, like, yeah, there were people just how they felt a, about President Trump and people felt that way. Some people felt that way about President Obama, uh, you know, and it's just like sort of intrinsically, like right away is like, yeah, I, I, I hate this and I hate everything about it. And no, I can't talk to you. That's really what it turned into. I think, you know, I mean, when you used to have, you know, a, a, a great debate you know like william f buckley used to to do that show uh is that called firing line i don't want to sound yeah, stupid I think but i think it was right. think yeah. It, yeah but it's like when you when you know and it's just like oh it's great having two people that uh, disagree and just the idea that you know there used to be debate in 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 washington but everybody would go out for drinks after mm, you know yeah. and it's just like yeah just talk about it and uh the idea of like oh i can't talk to you and then it's like oh you know if you voted this way i don't want to be friends with you anymore i'm like I don't care who you voted for. It, you know? it's, it's also like, not a very good strategy for converting people. If that is, yeah. your goal, if, you're, if your goal is to get people to come over to your position voting wise, or to nudge the Overton window towards whatever your thing is, contempt zero percent helps. I've never seen I've never seen contempt be helpful. Yeah. Con contempt can contempt can silence people. 
And it can like it can frighten people because if I'm going to be shunned by my community or whatever, I might get quiet about the thing. But you're going to really resent the people that forced you into that position. And I did like I there, there's there's a great guy that, that you ought to have on your program, Daryl Davis. Um, I had him on the political orphanage about a year ago now, and he's a really cool blues musician out of Maryland, um, kind of in the D.C. area. He's a he's a black blues a black uh, blues musician, and um, he one time was performing music and he met a guy in the KKK and uh, like to really reduce his wonderful story. Um, he ended up becoming friends with this guy who was actively in the KKK and he just called him and go, uh, Hey man, I'm running to the store. Do you want to come with me? And the guy would, you know, ride in a car very suspiciously with him. He invited him over for dinner a couple of times. And after like a couple of years of this, the guy called Daryl up and was like, I'm quitting the KKK. And he's like, why? And he's like, cause you're one of my best friends. I can't do this anymore. And that, that conversion, which he's now had success with, I think a couple hundred people, I think there's like over 200 people have left the Klan or left Nazi outfits have done it because he wanted to interact with them and wanted to make overtures of friendship, which totally a thousand percent understand why you wouldn't want to do it with anybody that, that actively is opposed to who you are. I totally get that. That said, though, from a tactical level, that works better than anything else. And, and so being able to be friends with something much, much less low on that totem pole of like, you know, you, you voted for a Republican senator or something, you're more apt to bring them over to your position if you continue to interact with them and have them in your life than if you cut them off and let them live in an echo chamber. Yeah, and then the, the people who cut off, it's like, I'm like, oh, I, I even agree with them, but if they're willing to cut people off, I'm like, I kind of want them to cut me off, you know? I'm like, I'm not that interested in interacting with somebody that that's how they make their decisions, you know? Right. I mean, uh, you know, uh, it, obviously, uh, people have a, a preconceived notion about uh, the late Andrew Breitbart, Andrew Breitbart, who uh, I, I knew very well. Uh, he, he was at my wedding, and he used to guest host for Dennis Miller all the time. And what I will tell people all the time about Andrew Breitbart is he wouldn't start talking about politics with you. He loved talking about baseball more than anything. And uh, boy, you know, just the, the fire that he had for the Los Angeles Dodgers was so funny and just sitting and talking to him for hours. And yeah, you could have the same conversation. I would talk to him about politics like that too, but it's like, yeah, it's just like, and he would be friends with everybody, you know? I mean, yeah. he, if you didn't agree with him, he was, he was happy to talk to you. And I think that, you know, the idea of having that conversation, you know, the conversations that he would have, whether it be on the show when he would guest host for Dennis or whatever, it's just, I think it's lost on, on a lot of people. The idea of, it's kind of interesting to disagree with somebody, you know, it's like, well, why do you feel that way? Okay. I kind of get it. You know, I mean, it's, it, it's, if somebody explains, you know, something like gun control. Well, here's why I think it's a bad idea. Here's why I think it's a good idea. You're probably not going to win each other over, but you're like, okay, at least I understand right. why people feel that way. You know, well, and, and, and a lot of the time, like, I, like I've been wrong about so much stuff in my life that like, I assume I'm wrong about stuff right now. I'm guessing sure. I'm wrong about probably 25 to 40% of what I currently believe. <laughs> right. I just don't know what bit. And in order for me to, I'm not going to find that out by talking to people that reaffirm what I already think I need to talk to other people. And what typically happens is, They'll plant some seed in my brain that feels a little bit uncomfortable. And after a couple of months, I'm like, you know what? I think I was wrong about that thing. And I, I'm with you too, Christian, about that. Like the, the, the people that are that, that, that quickly cut people off, because I think we all have some outer bounds of what's what's acceptable. Right. Like if your friend becomes a serial killer or something. But but when it's just you have the you have a wrong opinion or you voted the wrong way. And so I'm going to I'm going to cut you off. It's frightening because it's like I've got 
like I, I was not a Trump guy. I was very much opposed to Trump during the 2020 election and the 2016 election. I never flirted with Trump. One of my best friends voted for Trump. Our friendship is not predicated on that. I know him very well. I know him to be a very good person. I think he made the wrong decision on it. But at the same time, I also know him well enough to say that he didn't walk into the booth and go, well, I really hate these ethnic groups and I hate women, therefore I'm voting for Trump. I know that that wasn't his reasoning going on, right? So we can get along pretty well. And for my friends that are apt to cut people off for infractions of whatever the perceived thing is, it really frightens me because I'm like, well, I know, I now know that I am living on permanent probation status with you. Like my, my friend that voted for Trump and I, neither of us were worried about losing the friendship based on how we voted. But, but it's like, okay, so like if, if Romney, like I voted for Romney, like if Romney came back, would I be cut out of your life if I voted for Romney? Like I had roommates one time when they found out that I voted for Romney, uh, kind of uh, were, were thinking about booting me out of the house. And I had to like explain why I did it. And they were like, well, okay. And I was like, well, this is terrifying because it means that I can never truly be comfortable around you because everything I'm doing is predicated on you agreeing with me. And like at some point, I'm going to disagree with you on something. I mean, at that point, we really have to look at each other and be able to say, are, are, are we saying the same thing in a different way or are we actually saying truly different things and can we live with each other if we are? Yeah, and I, and I think that, uh, you know, it, it's it's a simpler era where you could see that the other person running, you know, John McCain being a good example. You're like, okay, this is, this is a good man who uh, just has a different outlook. We'll vote the other way. Uh, but then I think with Trump, it obviously just drove people so crazy because yeah. you're like, no, this is a really bad guy. And I, it, it's like before he was ever uh, before he was ever on a ballot, people thought he was a bad guy. And some people loved him, you know, and it was just it was such a divisive figure. And I think that that reaction is what turned it into like, yeah. you know, I mean, I do think, look, people were, you know, there are certain people where if you told them you voted for George W. Bush, they probably wouldn't have been your friend. But. I think that like with Trump, it like reached a new level, especially yeah. the the second time. The first time, I think some people were willing to chalk it up. It's like, yeah, you know what? Everybody kind of hated Hillary, didn't they? <laughs> you know, but then the second time it's like, no, but look what he did. And and it was like, I, I still under, it's not like I didn't understand why people voted for Trump. I got it both times. I was just like, yeah, I just uh, I, I don't think I, I I don't think I I don't think I like that team sort of the way you're talking before. I was like, yeah, I'm just not going to just not going to vote for that team, you know, and it's like. I, I don't know. And I think that it's hard to have those conversations, but I, you know, I, I've, I've never thought I'm not going to talk to that person anymore because of yeah. how they voted, except for when they didn't vote for Sanjaya on American Idol. <laughs> you know, when you didn't see the talent there, I just don't think I can relate to you on yeah. any level, but well, we, yeah, all, we, we all agree. That is the outer bounds. If you yeah. didn't vote for Sanjaya, I, 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 I'm with you. And I think that like, I think one of the things that's, that's misdiagnosed right now in, in the culture wars is we tend to frame it as if it's left versus right. And I don't think it is left versus right. I don't think it's ever been that. I, I think that there's um, there, people are either pluralistic or they're authoritarian in terms of how they approach things. E either we all need to be on the same page or we don't need to be on the same page. And for people that believe we all need to be on the same page, there's a kind of comfort in compliance and solidarity that happens. And so when stress levels increase, it's like the zone of acceptability shrinks. So like I am, like I was, I don't know, 20, when I, when I voted for Romney, I was like a capital L libertarian. Now I'm just an independent. I might even be a liberal. I don't know. I've definitely slid left over the last few years, but I found that a lot of people that were, that were fine when they met me, that were like very progressive and I was libertarian, 
were no longer okay with me, even though I was like center left and they were now further left. And I was like, this doesn't make any sense to me because I am now closer to you than we were when we met. But but they weren't looking at it in terms of sort of what are, you know, what are you trying to do or alternately where we are? It was just a kind of where is my zone of comfort? And, and it's so retracted right now that I can only hang out with people that are very much whatever I am. And so a lot of us got cut outside of it, even though we weren't that far away. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, uh, sort of what you're talking about is sort of the idea that, you know, it's like, oh, well, that's great that we agree on these four things. But, you know, we kind of need to agree on all 20 things that uh, that I'm thinking of right now. Uh, and there was a comment in the chat a little while ago from Sam. Uh, like him or not, I feel that Rush Limbaugh was the only one who was able to make radio broadcasting his own as a format. And I'm not sure we'll ha ever have that again. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, in terms of doing the, the sort of conversations for radio, you know, people can talk to the success that Howard Stern had as a terrestrial radio broadcaster, but doing the like hour and a half interviews for Sirius, that's when people started to go like, oh yeah, see, listen to these conversations he's having. And, you know, when you, you're not backed up by that. But the reason why I bring up uh, Rush in that capacity was that his fans proudly called themselves ditto heads. That it was like, yeah, he believes these things. These are what I believe. And that's great that you found a guy that that is that. But doing Dennis Miller's radio show, he was socially liberal and fiscally conservative and a liberal on other things so nobody was a dennis miller ditto head and he thought that was great he didn't yeah. want that but radio stations want that yeah. they're going to tell you like here's why you should think this way on this issue and we're like well i just i don't feel that way i'm not going to pretend isn't that worse yeah you know and uh i i think that and, and i'm not singling out Cor rush Cor or his Cor listeners Cor for that corporate media prefers you be easily labeled corporate yeah. media corporate media wants you to exist in very set parameters that are easy to market and easy to interpret early on. And, and, and when you step out of that, like, cause I, like I went on some radio show and, um, and, and like, like they brought me on as the token libertarian, but like, I'm not like, I'm kind of center left on gun control. When they got on sure. gun control, I was like, yeah, like red flag laws. I'm with you on that. I think that like, and I'm kind of like, and like it just it threw the whole thing out of whack. Cause they're like, wait a minute. You're like, they're trying to argue <laughs> with me. And I'm like, but I don't disagree with you on this thing. Yeah. And they're like, but you're, yeah. you're being this thing. And I'm like, well, really, I'm I'm my own guy, and I have different opinions, and I'm not. It's not that my opinions are. I'm not taking somebody else's team and then trying to comport my opinions around that. I'm trying to figure out what I think, and then I figure out which team best aligns with what I'm thinking. And I like props to Dennis Miller on that. Like one of the things I like about my audience on the political orphanage is I think most of the audience actually disagrees with me <laughs> about yeah. about quite a lot of things. And I'm like, well, like for, first of all, good for them for wanting to expand their their mind a little bit. And uh, also, I, it makes me feel better because it means that I don't have to worry about alienating my audience if my opinion goes the wrong way because they're not there to get spoon-fed stuff they already believe. Yeah, and and it's also like you know, I mean, you know, De Dennis is a comedian. You shouldn't agree with everything he says. You know, I mean, most of what he says, he's saying for a joke. Uh, I just, I, I, and I, I do want to circle back to the book, but this I thought is is a funny anecdote in relation to radio interviews. Uh, Farad Muhammad mentions, I remember Buzz Aldrin was on a local program here in Chicago. He was telling a story about being on the moon, but the host had to interrupt him to do weather and traffic <laughs> on the eights. And uh, yeah, that is actually the perfect yeah. example of oh, uh, what the problem is, you know, that you always uh, have to get to those things, you know. That's and, a perfect example of that. That's great. Uh, yeah. I, I got to meet I got to meet uh, Buzz Aldrin here a couple of years ago when I was a television writer. And I like I just wanted to ask him about aliens and like finally got to do it. I was so excited. But it was because I was hanging out with him in a green room and not a... Uh, <laughs> 
not, not you know, having to talk to him uh, in between practice. Yeah. Yeah. Fard, that is a great example. Yeah, um, and, uh, and and he also says, I considered myself a Dennis Miller Republican since before the radio show. Yeah, because there were, there were very specific things, you know, and uh, Andrew Breitbart used to say, like, the, there was a bit that Dennis did that sort of a moment for him was when Ross Perot ran for president, uh, his his running mate uh, and uh, Andrew Stockdale, Admiral Stockdale. I don't Admiral want to get his Stockdale, name. Yeah, yeah, Admiral Stockdale. He his running mate. Uh, people just made fun of him. Is like, what? So we're supposed to hate this guy because he's bad on television. That's that's what Dennis's joke was. And he's like, well, they're being so mean to this guy. This guy's a this guy's a war hero, and uh, and that really connected with Andrew uh, Breitbart, and that's why he liked him. But yeah, I think that's a it's a good example of just like sometimes you realize like yeah, just because I agree on some of these things doesn't mean I I have to take all of it and. You know, it, it's tough to get your information in a way that is unbiased. You know, I mean, most people are like, well, which which of these echo chambers is the one that echoes what I think, you right. know, and and, you know, the idea that you don't get and, you know, look, there isn't really a, a good alternative. It's not like, well, CNN's right down the middle. That would be great. It'd be smart if somebody did that. But nobody did that. Yeah. You know, because it goes back to what you're talking about. Television. They they want drama. They want ratings, you know, and. And, you know, the, the, other, the other sad thing, too, and I hate to sound like a snob about this, but like you're also going for the lowest common denominator and having two options is the one thing all dumb people understand. Dumb people get us versus them. That's everybody understands that. Right. You get like a notch above that and you're like, maybe there's three ways of looking at that. And you get up to like level four and you're like, there might be three ways of looking at it. And all those people might have completely different opinions on this other topic. Right. But that's complicated. That's hard to do. It's very easy to go. There's there's red team and blue team and everything in the universe can be understood in those two ways. Uh, so let's uh, get back to the book. And of course, yeah. right at the moment where I start talking about the book is, uh, <laughs> is when I, I accidentally closed the, uh, I, I, cl <laughs> I closed the, uh, the graphic and now it's back. Uh, but Los Angeles is hideous poems about an ugly city. What I wanted to, uh, get to or just some of the the points that I, I know you make. Uh, there's a there's a, a chapter about the Hollywood sign. And I'll mm -hmm. let you put use the exact terminology you use because I don't want to butcher it. Uh, you know, it, it, it's funny because when I first moved to Los Angeles, uh, my roommate, Tim and I, we lived on uh, Beachwood Canyon on Beachwood Drive. And so people would make fun of us. It's like, oh, so you moved to LA and you immediately moved under the Hollywood <laughs> sign. And it's like, well, yeah, but that's not why we're like here. But then it's like, yeah, I guess, I guess that I am that idiot. But that wasn't the plan. You know, I, I didn't set out to do that. And, you know, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a sign that's uh you know, one of the things that when people come to visit, I take them to see it, but you know, we don't have a lot. It's not like you visit Washington DC. Oh my right. God, there's the monuments and the museums. There's so much to see. So we got this sign. Do you want to see the Capitol records building? Right. You know, but anyway, uh, I wanted you uh, to get a chance to make your point about the, yeah, Hollywood. no, you're hundred percent. We're going to, I think the, the landmarks in Los Angeles are not nearly so striking as like you go to New York city, there's the empire state building and the Chrysler building and grand central. And you go to Washington DC and there's the, you know, there's Congress and the white house. LA has a bunch of letters on a hill that kind of look like some dyslexic God tried to put dibs on it so that other gods couldn't take it. There's the Capitol Records building, and then there's a bunch of names hammered into a gutter along Hollywood Boulevard. So I, I was never super impressed with any of these things. Uh, and like, again, I just have to point to this, the aesthetics of it. If anywhere, if anybody else did, it's only because there's all this fame associated with it. It's not because it's terribly pretty. Like if Topeka, Kansas spelled out Topeka, 
on their one hill, you would right. be like, wow, look at that. We got to go to Topeka to take our picture next to these big letters. And it's also like, like it's, it's so how, like, the, like I, I did a research of this. It was originally Hollywood land. Yeah. And then the, the land just, it's not that they changed it. It's that it just fell off and no one wanted to bother fixing it. So it was a dilapidated sign. It was uh, put up as a housing addition for segregated housing. So well done, Hollywood. And, uh, and then for a while it was, Hollywoodland because yeah. like the the O half of the O fell off so it was a U and then literally uh the the maintenance guy got shit faced and drove off the cliff with the H on his car one time so it was Hollywoodland <laughs> for a bit and it finally ended up being like it was just this basically like like the road sign of Dorian Gray where this this decrepit thing is just falling apart and Hugh Hefner basically galvanized people to uh, contribute to restore the Hollywood sign. And so it's largely owed to him, which means ultimately the Hollywood sign was funded by all of these anonymous forgotten breasts. Like the same way that the pyramids <laughs> were made by the Jews. We don't know the names of the Jews that made them. We only know the name of Ramses and things like that. The guy that organized it's just, it's born on forgotten nipples uh, based on a, a, a former segregated housing addition. And I was like, this is just, ah, it's, it's so, so much of the, the underbelly of Hollywood's right there. Yeah. And, and you know, uh, Los Angeles does not have a, a great uh, history uh, when it comes to race. Uh, and I'm not even talking about the riots, you know, I mean, the, the, where uh, Chavez Ravine, where Dodger stadium is to bring it back to that, that was uh, affordable housing for, you know, low income yeah. Mexicans. And that is why uh, Mexicans, Mexican restaurant, uh, not restaurants, Mexican residents of Los Angeles hated the Dodgers until they had a Mexican superstar in Fernando Venezuela, Valenzuela. I wish I'd known that before I wrote yeah. my book. That oh, that's no, chapter. but, but then I could it's have like, been sports too. Yeah. But they, but they like, you know, hated the team because it's like, you know, and there's, there's photos of police like dragging people out of the houses because I guess it was eminent domain. It's like, no, yeah. we're going to, we're going to build this stadium here. The team yeah. that we lured here from Brooklyn. Uh, so oh, congratulations. Man. I'm going to hold in my inner libertarian from going on a screed about how much I hate both uh, st stadium subsidies and eminent domain to have yeah. like my like, like profound, like burst into flame bugaboos. Yeah. There's yeah. a lot of stuff like that. Like, like one of the, the other things too, like there's a poem in Los Angeles sprawl by edict where I talk about how, uh, by the way, and I have to say, I, I, now I'm in political mode. I promise this is funny for anybody listening. Oh, check out the book. It's a funny topic. Okay. Even, even if it isn't, it's fine. Uh, yeah. It's, it's, it's not a, it's not a street so much as, as humor, but you're right. Like, like the reason that Los Angeles is a giant sprawling metropolis is not accidental or, or it is, but it's not random. What, what happened was um, when FDR came to power and the federal housing administration came in and wanted to pass out mortgages to everybody in America, Los Angeles and other cities in California uh, went, oh crap, if we, if we do this, are black people going to get mortgages? We don't want that. So what they did was they, they basically outlawed building up because they figured that black people were going to live in apartment complexes instead of living in houses. And on top of that, if you had neighborhoods with single dwelling houses in them, they could have a neighborhood covenant, which would require approval for anybody to buy a new house in the neighborhood. So basically you could have white neighborhoods that could only let white people in and you ban all the apartment buildings. And the thought was that that would keep black people on the periphery of the city and not let them move in. Well, Los Angeles has gotten over that, that overt racism. I, like, I don't think that Los Angeles today is a, a racist place or any more racist than anywhere else in America. I think it's pretty good in that regard, but they never updated the laws. 
So it's illegal to build up in Los Angeles like 80% of the developed land that you could otherwise build in. You can't build multi-dwelling units in a city of like 12 million people. So the result is you have to keep building out and you have this massive, massive city that's really like eight cities that kind of tumor together yeah. that keeps spreading out like, like if you pour maple syrup on a sidewalk because it, it legally can't go up. And uh, so, yeah, like it's basically the reason Los Angeles is a sprawling, ugly mess is because of racism. Yeah. And also, you know, getting around that sprawling, ugly mess, which will transition into an, another of your entries in a moment. But it, it's because when people, you know, when you had the boom here, uh, the, the baby boom, really, it was, oh, yeah, we should probably uh, invest in, you know, some kind of elaborate subway system. And then the car companies were like, no, here's some money for some freeways, build, right. sell some more cars, which is great if you can afford a car. But the same people you're talking about, like, well, I, you know, we, we're not going to be able to buy a car, right? At least not right now. Mm -hmm. uh, well, then I guess you can sit on a really hot bus for two hours. Right. How does yeah. that sound? Uh, and and you, uh, you have an ode to traffic in the book, don't you? I do. I mean, I think that that is one of the signature characteristics of Los Angeles is that it had like probably the worst traffic in America. I think at least at least in terms of notoriety. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think you, if you want to go on a technicality, uh, Atlanta is worse because they put like the freeways all converge, like right the the interstates converge right in the middle of the city. Okay. You know, and, and it's like it, it couldn't have been like laid out worse, uh -huh. but. I don't think that's much of a solace to somebody that that lives in Burbank and works in Santa Monica, you know? Yeah, that like, so again, I'm in Tulsa right now. I can get anywhere in Tulsa in 20 minutes. It's wonderful. I like, there's no such thing as traffic. It's funny because like people on the south side of town are like, oh, you're in the, you're in downtown? Well, we're never going to see you. It's 20 minutes away in our very easy drive where the worst case scenario is a series of red lights. Yeah, there's an entire poem dedicated to traffic in Los Angeles, an ode to traffic where I talk about how many, like, I think it's like a thousand hours that people spend in cars uh, on average about year, right. yeah. uh, uh, per year. And, and my, uh, my, my takeaway is look like uh, it's a thousand hours on average, but it only takes one hour to drive away. That's how long it takes to get out of the city. Just drive and keep driving. <laughs> uh, yeah. And you know, it's uh, it, it, that that's been the greatest thing about uh, the last year and a half is uh, just, you know, not commuting. But then when you do go places, then you start to realize like, oh, I guess everybody's going has gone back to work. Because even a year ago, like last summer, driving somewhere on the freeways, I was like, how did it only take me 20 minutes to get somewhere that used to take an hour, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, so it, it, it was great. Uh, and I think that's why so many people are like, yeah, I'm not even really so worried about uh, 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 about COVID. Can I just work from home? I don't know, maybe even sometimes, you know, because look how good we did it. Uh, you know, one of the uh, points you make in the book, and I, I will raise my hand as a coward, is only cowards fear winter. Mm -hmm. uh, so growing up in, in New York, I grew up uh, like 45 miles northwest of Manhattan, right where the suburbs start to get rural. We're between two mountains and, uh, you know, uh, uh, schools all around the area would be open and, and we would we would just be closed because we would get so much snow all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I had enough of those winters where I'm so glad to be here where I don't have to, I, I, sh I was back one Christmas where I, I got out the snowblower and I, uh, I, uh, my wife and I, we helped shovel out my mom. It was quaint. It was kind of, it was like 2009, but I don't ever need it again, you know? Uh, so that's just me because I've had enough of it. So, uh, you know, much like Blue Oyster Cult says, don't fear the reaper, I fear the winter. Right. But uh, you would say that uh, people that are here for that reason, 
they are cowards, aren't yes. aren't we? <laughs> I, I stand by my position that you and you and all of them are cowards. Uh, I, I think that this <laughs> it, it helps that I'm I'm from Oklahoma, which is a state where God is actively trying to murder everyone with weather. We have brutal brutal winters. It was like negative fourteen at one point in January this year. The summers are horrible, and then there's tornado season and earthquake season. So we at least have the solace of knowing we're not supposed we're trespassing and God's trying to murder us. Los Angeles exists in perpetual spring and summer. And uh, in it, I, I, for one, aesthetically, I would much rather be cold than sweat. I hate sweating. My ideal would be to never experience 85 degrees Fahrenheit or hotter again for the rest of my life under any circumstance. But I, I think that aside from the cowardice of fleeing winter, I think that Los Angeles has a, a, a very numinous trap that people can fall into because I think you need seasons to remind you you're going to die. Like you need to have, you need to have winter so that you see all the plants die and you're, you like change your clothes and you're like, you know, and you, if fall happens, you're like, oh, it's like, okay, cool foliage. And like, now I get to drink this particular type of coffee I like. And, and then, and then spring runs around and you're like, oh, this is great. I'm going to put on a t-shirt. When you don't have that, you don't realize you're aging nearly as fast. You just wake up and you're like, oh shit, I'm 45. When did I'm wearing a hoodie. Why am I wearing a hoodie? I'm 45 and I have a skateboard. And I think I think Los Angeles can really like sneak, like, like aging can sneak up on you there yeah. because you just don't, you're not aware of the passage of time. Whereas like you need to, but once a year, you need to get a little drunk at like, like the dead of winter and go, crap, I'm 37 now? Man, <laughs> oh, I need to do some stuff. Whereas I don't, I don't know that you necessarily get forced to confront that. Yeah, and by the way, you nailed it. I am forty-five. I've lived oh, yeah. here for eighteen. I've lived here for eighteen years, and uh, it, it, did you just realize it now? You haven't thought about it until I yeah. I, I thought I was still twenty-eight, and then yeah. I thought about it. I'm like, wait a minute, no, no, no. no. I, I need to get rid of my beanbag. This is ridiculous. I should buy lawn furniture. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I think it, you know the the one pro that I had for Los Angeles moving here from New York, and you know, obviously, I didn't I didn't live in the city. Uh, I never lived in the city. Closest I ever got was Hoboken, uh, which. Uh, boy, if you want to do a book, uh, I could do a book on Hoboken. But uh, the the idea in New York was because of the proliferation of mass transit, even out of the city, the the that moment, which happened way too often, was it was like one thirty, and I was like, yeah, you know, I should probably go home. You know, I have to work tomorrow. I was like, yeah, but why don't we get another pitcher of beer? Not let's get another beer. Let's get another pitcher. And then all of a sudden it's like 4 a.m. And I'm like, oh, so that didn't happen in L.A. because you had to drive home and, and also the bars closed earlier. So no, that it helps. I, I did find people were less inclined towards alcoholism in L.A. than they are yeah. in, in New York and D.C. I will yeah. give hats off there. Like people drink far more responsibly. Hats off to them. We're, like D.C. conversely, if this book does really well, I might write a book called Washington is Pretentious. And half, oh. the, half, half yeah. the poems will either be about what a population – made entirely out of former student council presidents, which like, <laughs> and the other half will just be like, like basically pointing out what functional alcoholism yeah. is. Cause that uh, city is just like, it's just chunks of marble floating in a sea of bourbon all the time. It's arguably functional alcoholism. Yeah. 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 Arguably the, the, functional. The yeah. one summer that I lived there, I lived in Georgetown. And so then pretty quickly you're like, Oh, wait a minute, I got to take the bus everywhere. What? <laughs> 
what the what the hell? And so I, I would like walk up Wisconsin Avenue in in the humidity because I'm like I just don't want to be on the bus. You know, I'm wearing I was a I was a White House intern. I'm like I'm wearing a tie and I'm like I'm still gonna just I, I would just rather walk mm-hmm. than get on that bus that goes all the way up. Uh, just a, a couple more things I wanted to uh, touch on, but I, I saw a great comment from Corby in the chat. Uh, uh, I have no idea how I'm 41. <laughs> Branson must have the same effect. Corby uh, it, it, living in Branson. Uh, one that, of the that, things that would militate against my theory somewhat as I imagine Branson, Missouri probably gets the same level of, of weather. So I don't know. In his case, maybe he's just taking really good multivitamins and he's not wrinkling as fast as I am because I've, I've got a long horse face and I drink too much. I am very aware of my age. In his case, maybe he's just very virile and stuck up on it. More power to you, sir. Yeah. <laughs> um, one of the things that uh, you focused on is it's a perfect example of how everything in Los Angeles is fake. Yes, it's because TV and movies are made here, but in general, there's a lot of, you know, phonies and things. The first time I ever came here, I came to visit a friend and I was so, and, and, you know, I loosely like worked in television in New York, but I was so tired of talking about it that I, I remember talking to this girl who was a dental hygienist and I, and I talked to her. Yes, she was cute. I'll say that. But I talk, I was so much more interested in her than anyone else. I'm like, because everybody sizes you up with, uh, what do you do? Mm, mm. Is that going to help me? All right. Well, I'll see you later. You know, and, and, and just the idea of just having an actual conversation with people. But one of the phoniest things about Los Angeles, and you do appropriately use air quotes, is the Los Angeles River, which, of mm. course, is not a river. Oh, God, that thing. Yeah, that like the, the Los Angeles River is a gutter that appears to be the byproduct of a mountain with a faulty prostate. It is like, like I, like when I showed up, like the first time I was there, I was like, oh, I live near a river. And then I went there and was like, what is this drainage ditch? It's completely cement. It like, it's, it's this just, it, it reminds me of like when a toilet leaks, like, cause it's never, it never gushes. It like no. it, maybe twice a year it'll yeah. rain in Los Angeles and everybody flips out because they don't know how to deal with it and, and like just park. Uh, and then I'm, it's probably a great torrent of a river at that time. The rest of the time, though, it's just, oh, it's it's just, it, it's 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 like you you've got a plumbing problem, and yeah, that's why I think the Los Angeles River should legally have air quotes around it. River, it's the Los Angeles River. Yeah, when when it rains in February, and if it doesn't rain in February, then it doesn't rain all year. Uh, but if it does rain in February, like it's supposed to, like God intended, uh, that's when the, the and you'll see it on the news. They'll show you the LA River. It's like, look at it. And I'm like, all right, it's still not really a river. But yeah, that's literally the only time you ever see it full. And, you know, it, it, it's TV and movies love to film there. You know, I mean, they they shot the the Greece uh, right. uh, race uh, down there at the L.A. River, again, using the air quotes. Well, uh, Andrew, I could talk to you about the book. I could talk to you about all the other things we talked about again. But uh, you've been uh, very generous with your time. I appreciate it. Uh, the book, Los Angeles' Hideous Poems About an Ugly City. Our guest has been Andrew Heaton. Tell us uh, where people, uh, obviously podcasts are usually all found in the same place. But let's uh-huh. uh, give them the name and tell them where they can find it and, and how they can keep in touch with you. I appreciate the plug very much. It's been a pleasure talking to you. I had not anticipated having a delightful substantive conversation bookended within the discussion of my book, but very much enjoyed it. Uh, If you, okay, so if you're listening or watching and you really like the funny part of our conversation, highly recommend you buy Los Angeles' hideous poems about an ugly city. You can go to amazon.com or you can go to laisugly.com. They'll both take you to the same place. 
If conversely, you didn't like the funny bits, but you really like the substantive bits, then I would recommend you check out my podcast, The Political Orphanage, which is specifically designed for people that like to get along with folks they disagree with and are just trying to figure out what's happening. Right. And uh, hopefully everybody liked all the bits and hopefully, then they want yeah. the book and they subscribe to the podcast. That would be the ideal. If you don't yeah. do that, you hate if, if you if you don't buy the book, it means you think Los Angeles is the prettiest place on earth and shame on you. And if you don't listen to the podcast, it means you're against pluralism and shame on you. You should do both. If you if you think Los Angeles is the prettiest place on earth, you probably grew up and still live in Malibu. I, I can I, I I'll I'll have to concede that having just been out there over the weekend, you're like, yeah, all right, I get it. I get why people live out here. Uh, but again, I still think it's too cold most of the year. But that's just me, you know. But I I live in I live in Burbank, so we, we you know. can't get married. We're not going to get along well if if, if you think <laughs> Malibu's too cold. I, I would just have to go our separate ways. Yeah, but but you know, but Burbank's too hot, so I don't know. Oh, yeah, and that was what I was going to say earlier. By the way, is uh, another instance that we definitely couldn't get married is that if given the choice, I would rather live in Vegas or Phoenix than live in Maine. Like I would rather just I'll I'll deal mm. with the 120 degrees, uh, but I just I just don't want to be cold anymore. I don't think my my bones are too soft now. I can't <laughs> handle it anymore. Yeah, see, see, this is what I find. I find that heat makes me tired and cranky. Coldness oh. just makes me alert and angry, and I would rather be alert and angry than tired and cranky. And so I am. I am fine with like strapping myself in a parka and like blazing off to save my cow from a blizzard, and then like coming in and like sitting by the fire and just glaring and drinking whiskey. What I'm yeah. not okay with is just that feeling of like damp, sticky heat. All when you're trying to do something, yeah, you're, you're trying to fix something, and you're just oh god, I hate it so much. I hope. I hope this book sells well enough that I could just buy a house in New Hampshire and never go <laughs> south of Westchester County again under any circumstance ever. Well, uh, I was going to point out, uh, you're selling at least one thanks to this conversation. David House points out Heston is a, hute, a hoot buying the book now. So uh, you, you've sold yes, one. and I I'm, did it. I'm, I'm sure that, uh, you know, that that's the return you were looking for for this conversation was at least one. This is great. Uh, no, I've, I've got I've got exactly one million media hits lined up. And so <laughs> at the current rate, I, I am probably going to be worth about five million dollars. So this, yeah. this, this is just, this is working out really well. Just remember to keep the smile on your face uh, if if the host breaks away for uh, traffic and weather on the eighth, <laughs> you know. Uh, well, uh, Andrew Heaton, Los Angeles is hideous. Poems about an ugly city. Uh, this is a delightful conversation, and I hope we have an excuse to uh, chat again soon. I'd love to come back anytime. Thank you so much for having me. All right, we'll talk to you again tomorrow. Uh, but <laughs> uh, thank you so much, and uh, we appreciate everybody in the live chat. Thanks to everyone. And uh, for our next episode, it will be the long-delayed conversation where our pal Will Sterling, Agent Sterling, and I, we will finally sit down and dissect the A&E biography on KISS. So if you want to see a very different kind of conversation, it'll be that one. But boy, I would talk about KISS just as seriously as I'll talk about anything we talked about here. That's not today, though. That'll be next time on The Black Cast. Rolling down. Highway, the big nasty red out of my side. Santa and the winds blowing hot from the north. We were born to ride. Roll down the window, put down the top. Crank up the beach boys, baby. Don't let the music stop. We go ride it till we just can't ride it no more. From the side. 
to say, have a nice day. And listen to the damn show.